We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. If you have a Bible or if there's one near you, find Psalm 24, the first passage that was read to us, read by Janelle. I want you to notice in verses 1 to 2, How God is conceived of. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Now this is quite an audacious claim. This is an exclusive claim. it's, It's a claim that says there is only one God. And this whole creation belongs to this God. That creation wasn't created by kind of a pantheon of gods. It wasn't created by forces that were at war with each other. There is a single soul God that created everything. And, And because he created it, it belongs to him. And not only did he create it, but he he gave it order. And therefore, this creation belongs to God. Now, that's verses 1 to 2. Now, look very quickly at verses 3 to 6. We see here that since... There is one God, and this one God is so great and so powerful that the author of this psalm kind of asks an obvious question. Then who in the world can draw near to this great God and worship him? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who will stand in his holy place? If, if he is so great that he is the king of the universe, if everything belongs to him, if he's that big, If he's that powerful, then who in the world can stand before him? And then the answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart or does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And the answer to the question is those who obey God's moral commands. Those who recognize, I mean, this is quite a significant shift, isn't it? He, he owns everything. Those who can worship him or those who recognize his kingship in the particular details of their life. I mean, do you see how he shifted from kind of a, this massive picture of the universe down to this infinitely small kind of levels of obedience? Who can stand before the great king, the one who recognizes he's not only this kind of far off universal king that is so large, we can't even wrap our minds around him. The one who recognizes that he's also a very particular king, a king who draws near to us and knows what's going on in our lives and has not only the rightful claim over creation, but has a rightful claim over the details of our life. And then in the next few verses, it's kind of a shift again. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors. The king of glory may come in. Now, we're not sure where this psalm, the exact kind of nature of its origin, but it appears to scholars today that this psalm was used when pilgrims came to Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, which was up on a hill. And when they came to Jerusalem to worship God, they would sing the song as they entered into Jerusalem. So they shift from this great God that's king of the universe to 
How dare I go up on that hill to that temple and worship that one true God? And then once they kind of work their way through that, then they turn to to culture. And they say, culture, gates, city, everything belongs to this God. Lift your eyes, look up. And it's almost like it's almost like it kind of does a play on concepts, a play on words. He's the king of all creation, but he's also the king over the details of my life. And when I recognize that he's the king, it moves me to worship him. Now, that's kind of the overall movement of this psalm. It's the recognition of the kingship of Christ, I mean, of God, moves us toward worship. Now, that is a great backdrop for for beginning to engage with this incredible scene we see playing out between Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus and Simeon and Anna. When we jump forward to these characters in the story that are surrounding the baby Jesus, Luke, the author of this part of Scripture that Gates read to us, he gives us vivid illustrations of what it looks like when people really live out Psalm 24. When when it's not just a piece of theology or of religious rhetoric, but when it's something that has taken root down in the soul of somebody, That's what we see when we look at these people surrounding the baby Jesus. So let's turn now to Luke chapter 2. I think one of the things that Luke, the author of this gospel, and God ultimately who inspires Luke to write these words, that he's trying to get across to us is that when you recognize God is king, then it will result. If you really recognize that, if you own that, if you take it into your arms, like Simeon, it says in the passage, he took the baby Jesus into his arms. When you take this into your life, then it will result in a life of conscientious obedience. Now, before we look specifically at the passage, so look back at chapter one, verse six, talking about Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly and all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And then as we go forward through Luke chapter 1, we see similar kind of descriptions given of Mary and Joseph, the parents of Jesus. So in Luke chapter 1, we're told that these people surrounding Christ are very pious, very devout Jews. And then when we get to chapter 2, we're not told that they are, we're shown that they are in the way they respond to these situations. So what I want to do is first start out with the frame of this scene, the beginning of it and the end of it, and show you how Luke, this master literary artist, is doing some technical things in the way he writes in order to get you to think about the meaning of the passage. So look first in Luke chapter 2, verse 21, at the end of eight days when he was circumcised. Now, that's a religious ritual. Because he was circumcised on the eighth day. They're obeying the Jewish scripture that says you must circumcise on this day. It is a specifically religious ritual. He was circumcised. He was called the name Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And then in verse 22, and when the time came for the purification according to the law. So here Luke again brings up the issue of religious fulfillment. They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord. Do you see how bam, bam, bam. I mean, Luke, the author is being very careful to get you to think about 
how these people around the life of Jesus are proper Jews. And to offer a sacrifice, again, this is a very um, specific religious ritual, a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. He mentions it again, that they're following the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, that's the beginning of our scene. Now flip to the end of our scene, Luke chapter 2, verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law, I mean, do you get the impression that Luke's got an agenda here, right? The author of this, the law, the law, the law. They fulfilled the law. They did everything according to the law of the Lord. They returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. So in in verse 21, 22, 23 and 24. And then in the last the last verse of this scene, you find two things being emphasized. One, the trip to Jerusalem and the trip home from Jerusalem and two, the the observance of the law at the beginning and then at the end, a reiteration that they observed the law. Now, that's what we call in literature a frame narrative. It means that the beginning and ending of it's like the rhyme of the ancient mariner has a very famous frame narrative. This is a technique that's been around for a long time, and it's something the author does in order to give you a specific interpretive lens for the story you're about to encounter. They say it at the beginning, and then they bring it up again at the end. Now, some of the things I'm going to say in a minute, they they come out of this. They come out of what the author Luke is saying and doing for us. But before we get to that, let me defer that just a moment longer. Go back to Luke chapter 1, and I mean chapter 2, and let's start in verse 21. There are three ceremonies that Luke is very clear the child, the baby Jesus, um, is led through. The first one is circumcision. As I already mentioned, this goes all the way back to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis. When God entered into a relationship with Abraham, one of the things he said is circumcision is it's a sign that you and I are in this unique relationship. The, the closest analogy we have today is a wedding ring. This ring is a symbol and a sign. When I'm out in public, this is our culture's way of me not having to say anything at all, right? Now, circumcision wasn't displayed in public. Obviously, I'm not saying it on that level, but I'm saying it's a similar thing. It's a sign and symbol of an exclusive relationship that I belong to another and another belongs to me. That was circumcision. And Christ, they did this with Christ. On the eighth day. In other words, exactly the way the law commanded them to do it. The law of God. Now look at verse 22. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they were brought to Jerusalem. In Jewish law, the law that God had given to Israel. When a woman gave birth, she was unclean for seven days. Until on the eighth day, the child was circumcised, if it was, a, if it was a, a male child. And then for 33 more days, she had to stay at home. And then on the 40th day, she offered a sacrifice and she was clean. Now, we're not going to get into all the Jewish laws of cleanliness and uncleanliness, but I'll just say this. They always have to do with transitional moments. Moments where life and death come in contact with one another. So if you touch a dead body, you're unclean. Uh, moments where life is coming into being, like birth. 
these, these cleanliness laws have a way of demarcating life and saying that there are areas of life that are mysterious and beyond us, and God has rules for all of life. I'll leave that, at, that at, there for now. So, so Mary goes to Jerusalem after these 33 plus 7 days are up to go through this purification ceremony. And then look what it says at the end of verse 22. They brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now, this is a third ceremony. When God rescued Israel out of Egypt, one of the things he said was, every single firstborn son belongs to me. Every single firstborn animal belongs to me. When an animal had its first offspring... That offspring, the firstborn of an animal, was then given to God through a sacrifice. Now, God wasn't saying you have to give firstborn children to him as a sacrifice. What he said was, every firstborn son has to be given to me as a priest. But, in order not to completely disrupt society, he chose the, the tribe of Levi and said, this tribe will serve as substitution for every firstborn child in Israel. So the whole tribe of Levi becomes priests for perpetuity's sake. And what would happen is, for example, if, if Julia, if you and Tim were not of the tribe of Levi, your firstborn son did not have to become a priest, but you had to pay a tax to redeem your son out of the priesthood. And then it worked to support the priesthood. That's how they made their money and blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. Now, the reason I go into all these details, that tax could be paid anywhere to any priest. So why were Mary and Joseph going to Jerusalem to pay this tax? They didn't have to do that journey. Travel was very treacherous. It was dangerous. The reason is because they chose not to pay the tax. Because they chose to give Christ to God. To set him aside. They chose to offer him to God for holy vocation. And the, and the way they did that was they offered this um, instead of paying the money, they, they offer him up. They present him to the Lord. It's, it's kind of the same way I would give you a present. It's the same type of word. They present him. They give him to God. Now, that's the third ceremony. All right. Now, all that behind us. Why is Luke going to such pains to give us all of these details? Because, think about this, Luke wrote this a long time after Christ died and rose from the dead. And nobody he was writing to was bound to obey those laws anymore, right? Those of you who've grown up in church. The Old Testament law was passed away, right? Christ said that. I'm fulfilling the sacrificial system, right? He was the Lamb of God. So because he died on the cross, no sacrifice was ever made again by those who followed him. So why is Luke writing after the fact, being so careful to point out that this was going on around the life of Christ? I think the answer is on multiple levels. First of all, a little bit later in Luke's gospel, Jesus has fierce conflict with the religious establishment. And it gets so fierce, they kill him. It's the religious establishment that kills him. So early in the gospel, Luke is making the point that Jesus is not anti-religion. 
He was not raised up in a home that was anti-establishment. He was not raised up in a home that was anti-Judaism. In fact, did you so according to the law of Moses, according to the law of Moses, according over and over and over, he makes the opposite point. Now, that's very important for us today. It's very important that we when we get later on in Luke's gospel and he is he is blasting the religious establishment. It's very important we realize who is blasting the religious establishment. It is a very religious man. It's not a guy on the outside. He's not anti-institutional. He's not anti-religious. He's not anti-ritual. He recognized these things as so important. He was challenging the religious establishment, not for being religious, not for being people who do rituals, but for being people who lost the heart of it. And Luke is trying to make this larger point. There's a famous verse in another book of the Bible, the book of James, where the brother of Jesus writing it says, true and undefiled religion is this. Have, Have you ever been around people who talk about Christianity in terms of Christianity in contradistinction to religion? And Christianity is relationship and grace. And religion is ritual and institution. That's a false distinction. It's a distinction the Bible doesn't hold up. It's clearly a distinction that Luke, who's recording the life of Jesus, is not interested in. He's not interested in religion and no religion or ritual and no ritual. He's interested in cold, dead ritual over against ritual on fire. Hollow, formalized religion that's lost the real heart over against religion that is pure and undefiled. That's the way James puts it. Now, I think this is a a very important point for us today because we live in a similar situation to, to the one Jesus encountered. We live in a society that has civic religion. And as we consider how to follow Christ faithfully, we should take our cues from the way the first church dealt with these issues. Now, the second thing I think that Luke is bringing out here is that Mary and Joseph, Anna and Simeon, all of these characters, they obeyed God. And obedience for them was not legalism. Now, the reason I bring that up is because, again, today, you often get religion compared and contrasted to Christianity. And and we'll talk about Christianity as the opposite of legalism, the opposite of being so concerned with the law. And so the word pious, I used it earlier. We can't even hardly use the word pious anymore without automatically thinking of kind of self-importance. Piety and pious in in a lot of ways in our culture takes on very negative connotations. The idea of kind of just, um, well, he's pious or don't be so self-righteous. But here we encounter the mother and the stepfather of Christ. who Luke says they were careful to perform everything according to the law. Clearly for them, obedience was not driven by what some people call legalism. It wasn't driven by a desire to work your way up into his favor by doing the right thing. 
So what happens often in our society today is over against that kind of religion where you're trying to work your way up into God's favor by doing the right thing. We have opposed to that something called grace. And when you have to pick between the two, which one are you going to pick? I'm going to pick grace because I mess up a lot, right? For psychological self-preservation, I have to pick grace. But it's not a distinction. It's not a, a choice that Luke is pushing on us. For Luke, Mary, and Joseph, and these other characters, they obeyed God's laws because God's laws were a loving expression of His purposes for humanity. So they loved to obey God's laws. Go back to Psalm 24 and just think about that. If He has founded the whole universe, if He's given all of this creation order, then He's got the right to order the minutia of your life and my life. Here's the reason I'm kind of going into all of this. Martin Luther. Quick history lesson, right? Several centuries back, there's only there were two churches in the world. There's the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church. And Martin Luther was being abused by the Catholic Church. And he had felt like in the medieval kind of time period, the Catholic Church had gone astray. So when Martin Luther was struggling with these issues, he came across a verse in Romans that says, the just shall live by faith. And Martin Luther had been abused by pastors and priests who said the just live by their works. There's a famous saying, when the coin in the coffer flings, a soul from purgatory springs. And so they were selling indulgences and they were using these things to build their cathedrals. So when Martin Luther was coming toward Christ, he was being tyrannized by all of these teachings that said, you've got to obey perfectly in order to please God. We would call that legalism. So when he reads this verse, the just shall live by faith, he reads it as they shall live by faith and not by their works. That is not the challenge we face in America. I do not run into anybody that's trying to earn their way into God's favor. I don't have any friends like that. I have friends who have insecurities and they're trying to live up to mom and dad's favor. But I don't see people crawling on their knees to Rome and beating themselves on the back with whips as they try to purge themselves of sin. I think that our situation is much closer to people who had forgotten the law. People who had forgotten that God cares about the minutia of your life. Now, I'm talking a lot to Christians right now. If you make legalism the boogeyman, then you make an idol out of grace. But legalism is not our boogeyman. Licentiousness is our boogeyman. And when, we, when you realize that licentiousness, libertinism, there are no laws. When you realize that's the real threat to us living in the world today, then now maybe we're ready to look at obedience in a different light than as legalism. Another thing that I think Luke is doing in this passage is he's saying that this business of approaching the king of the universe, it's serious business. Right? Psalm 24, who in the world can ascend to the hill of the Lord? So what was happening with Mary and Joseph? Why were they doing all of these rituals, these complex rituals that cost them a lot of time and energy and money? 
Because they were gripped by that same vision of reality. That the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and it is not a simple thing to approach Him. Because He owns it all. He's huge. He's massive. And so when you see these complex rituals, it was, it was a way of them stopping and pausing and being very serious and very conscientious about their approach to God. Now, one of the provisions that Christ made for us is that we don't have to make sacrifices anymore. Can you imagine if every time you came to worship, you had to bring a little lamb, you know, everybody brought him in and we... Can you imagine how serious if every time you went to worship, you laid your hand on the head of an animal as a priest cut its neck and it died. And you had to look at that and see that and smell that as it's disemboweled. Can you imagine the impact of that on you as you thought about this deity that you're relating to? And I think Luke is saying a couple of decades after that has all passed away, he's saying to us, it's still serious business. And we mess up when we forget that. We still need to realize that that God, that Christ is huge. And worship is hard work. One of the things I like about liturgy, the kind of liturgy we do, is it takes this stuff seriously. It takes approaching God seriously. I mean, from the very first prayer, and I just want to challenge you that when you go to worship and whatever your church's liturgy is, if you're a part of this church, that you don't snooze through this stuff. Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This is a big God. And we have these complex rituals as we approach him. Now, he is accessible, but he is God. That's the frame of this scene. Okay, that's the beginning and the end. But the heart of this scene is when Simeon takes the Christ child into his arms. The heart of this scene is the bold declaration that Christ alone is God's provision for salvation. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Look at verse 29. Simeon takes this child, verse 28, up into his arms. And he blesses God and he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. It's it's, it's an amazing thing. He's referring to Christ as salvation. He's saying, I've seen it now. And And the very second word in English is Lord now, the word now. But it's the first word in the original language that this was written in Greek. Now. And Simeon is making the point that with the arrival of this baby, God's provision for the redemption of the world is here now. This is it. I've seen it. When you see Jesus, Simeon is saying, you see God's way to salvation. God's only way. Look what he says. Lord, now you're letting your servant. He he talks about how it's impacting him personally. That that Jesus is not only God's provision for salvation to the whole world, but he's also God's provision to Simeon on a very personal, very existential level. Now you're letting your servant depart in peace. Now I can face death. I can die in peace now. I have met Jesus and the rest of my life, all the details of my resume, they are irrelevant at this point from here on out. I can entrust myself to death because I know that life and immortality have been brought to light. This is a deeply personal issue. Again, it's the same kind of thing 
that we see back in Psalm 24. It's this kind of shift from this universal worldwide. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. But who gets to worshiping? The one who's got all these little bitty things coming under his kingship. And here's Simeon saying, here's the problem. Here's the solution for the world in me on a very personal level. Here's how it is affecting me. And, and he says, look in verse 32. Christ is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Not only is Christ a personal offer of salvation, but he is the only offer of salvation for Gentiles and for Jews. That's the only two categories to a Jew. (laughs) There's Jews and then there's everybody else at this time. The Gentiles, everybody else. He's saying for us and for everybody else, this is the answer. This is it. I mean, that's an astounding thing. It's not a concept that's going to help the world. It's not, it's not a system. It's this baby. It's God in the flesh. And then look what he says in verse 34 when he, when he talks to Mary and Simeon blessed them. And he said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul. He says, look, because Jesus is the unique, once for all, only solution to the problem of the world, there are only two reactions to him. One reaction is to oppose him or to refuse him. The other is to trust him. He's saying that, look, this baby here is going to be the issue in everybody's life. And there are no other ways to react to him than these two. To refuse him, to oppose him, or to trust him. He's going to split the nation of Israel in two. Those who refuse and those who trust. And if you're a Christian, I think we live in a similar situation. That you will encounter people who are hostile. Because for me to say that Jesus is the only solution to the world, it's either arrogant or it's true. And it's not popular to have these kind of exclusive beliefs in in this world today. I believe it's true. And so I'm willing to risk being accused of arrogance because it's true. These are the two reactions. Now, the last character here is Anna. It's funny that Luke takes all of these pains to tell us about her age when shouldn't he have known you don't tell a woman's age, right? There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel. Of the tribe of Asher, she was advanced in years. That that would have been good enough, right, Sandy? I mean, that's 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 all we should say. Having lived, and then he starts adding it up. (laughs) Having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. Now, at this time and in this culture, a girl got married either at thirteen or fourteen. So she lived for seven years from that moment. So that puts her at what? 20 or 21, and then she was a widow for 84 years. So how old are we dealing with? 
Luke is, why is he going into this detail? He didn't tell us anything about Simeon's age, right? I've already showed you that Luke is a master literary artist. Okay, so don't skip over this stuff. You know, I think that's our problem. We skip over all that ritual sacrificial stuff earlier because we don't live in that place anymore, so we don't have to do that. Well, Luke's readers didn't live in that place. We need to stop it. Why is he going on about her age? She's somewhere probably between 104 and 105 years. Isn't that an elegant picture of this 100-year-old lady? What is she doing? She did not depart from the temple, but worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. Simeon was old, too. I mean, he was right there at the end. It's interesting as you trace through all these characters around Jesus, you have rural folk, you have urban folk, you have this young kind of adolescent teenager, Mary, you have a carpenter. And he's making this larger point that Christ is for everyone. But he's also giving us these incredible pictures that we can live out of Psalm 24 to the end of our days. And when I go out, I want to go out like Anna. You don't get the impression that retirement ever entered her vocabulary. She gave herself to the full-time vocation of worshiping God and praying and interceding. And we live in a culture of winners. And when you get out of the age where you win, you retire, right? You retire. What does that word mean? It means that for, on some level, our culture, you're no longer productive. But here with Anna, we have an entirely different vision of what it looks like to live out of Psalm 24. An old lady in a society that didn't value old people or ladies. And here we have her at 104. Sometimes I think our most productive years in the service of God can be in our senior years. That's the way I want to go out. Back to Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? That's a great question to drive your life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, for these incredible stories that Luke recorded for us that challenge us. Father, teach us what it means to be conscientious in our obedience to you in this culture that we live in. Father, free us up from presuming upon your grace and thinking that somehow that means obedience is no longer that serious. Father, I pray that you would help us as a church to be the kind of church that forms people into Anna's. That, God, we would be the kind of church that that shapes and forms people into the serious work of prayer and intercession 
and never retiring from your service. Help us to be the kind of church, Father, that is bold and courageous with unpopular ideas. That we're bold and courageous in a culture to say that Christ is the only way. Lord, we love you and we need you to help us to live out of these stories. Amen.